This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Ahinam to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeriah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helka Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just come before you this morning. Um, Lord, I just pray that we would just come with humble hearts. Um, I pray that we would come just yearning to know you more, understanding that we can never fully know you and yet wanting more and more of you, Father. Um, Lord, we know your spirit is already in this room, but I pray that <clears throat> that we would just sense your presence with us, um, that you would be with Mark, um, that the Holy Spirit would speak through him. Um, it would not be Mark's words. Um, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Um, and we thank you for the truth that it contains. Um, Father, just be with us this morning as a body, um, that we would just encourage one another um, and just uh, just be with one another um, as, we, as we strive to follow you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. It's nice to worship again together um, as God's people. Uh, we, again, have the privilege and the opportunity to dig into God's Word and to understand it. And uh, the, the joy with reading a book like 2 Samuel, I was, somebody asked me yesterday, what are, you, what are you preaching on? And I said 2 Samuel, and he goes, why? Like, what made you go there? Did you do 1 Samuel? I was like, yeah. Oh, okay, well, then that makes sense. As if, like, that's the only thing that makes 2 Samuel worthy of reading. Um, but I, I get what he's saying because, really? Like, what does this have to do with us today? Uh, what does this battle have to do with us today? What does it have to even do with God, and period? And that's the joy of reading God's Word and studying it and digging into it. And even in a passage like this or a chapter like this where you just soak in it and you mull over it, and you let it sit there. There is a reason that God has put this passage in Scripture, and it's more than just informational. God's Word is transformational. God's Word, His actual Word spoken to us, points to Christ who transforms lives. It's His Word that changes us and grows us. And we can gain knowledge, but if if it doesn't go to the heart, then what's the point, right? So that's, that's what our goal today. And my hope today is to read this, that when you walk away, you go, oh, that's why 
they all died. Well, okay, maybe it's a little bit more than that, but that makes sense now. Like, this is, this is, is this why God has put this passage in here to teach us and to change us? But to understand this passage, I think, better, we actually have to go backwards. We have to go back in time. So after the Lord rejects Saul as king, he actually tells Samuel, his servant, to travel to Bethlehem to the house of a man named Jesse. So if you were with us when we went through 1 Samuel like a year ago, you'll, hopefully this will come to mind. And the Lord had provided for himself, he says, a king from among Jesse's sons. And so one by one, the young men, Jesse's sons, come before Samuel. And this is, this is what uh, um, the passage says. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'm going to read 6 through 13. Now, we're going, to, we're going to spend a lot of time because we're going to go past what Luke just read in 2 Samuel. But there's a lot of scripture here. We're going to read it. So hopefully you've got your Bible app or your Bible out and we can read this together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 13. When they came, that is, Jesse's sons came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his sta- of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now fast forward about 20 to 25 years. Samuel has passed away. Saul has been killed in battle. And it only seems natural for David to rise up, announcing his anointing by God through Samuel and claiming the throne of all of Israel. And if we remember from last week, David's been anointed king over Judah and Hebron, but not over all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is still there. He's still battling. He's still claiming the throne of, of Israel. But instead of doing all these things, annou- uh, announcing his arrival, the Lord's anointed is here. David mourns Saul's death. And he inquires of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's will as to how to move forward to the throne. And as I just mentioned, he commands, he commands David to go to Hebron. He's anointed king of Judah. And then Abner, commander of Saul's army, moves his headquarters to Mahanaim, where he makes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, the king of all of Israel. And so now there's an inevitable civil war, right? So how is David going to take the throne of all of Israel? What's this going to look like? Well, Joab, his commander, has an idea. He's going to fight for the throne. 
when Abner marches out of his stronghold with an army ready to take the throne for the house of Saul, Joab meets him in strength, meets him strength for strength. He's ready to take the throne for the house of David. He's fighting on the right side. And we know it's the right side because David is the anointed king, right? So Joab's heart, in a sense, is right in doing this, fighting for the throne. But to avoid an all-out battle, Abner suggests representative combat, similar to the battle between David and Goliath, but with a, with a twist. And this was kind of normal to, to avoid all-out bloodshed and an entire decimation of, of armies. You'd have the two best warriors come together, they would battle it out, and whoever won that battle would win the whole battle and would be submissive to the victorious army. But here, they decided to have 12 from each side battle together. And what happens? They each, all 24 of them, okay, they each grab the head of their opponent, how this happened is crazy, and then they killed each other all at the same time. All 24 are dead in one foul swoop, meaning that there is no winner. So what has to happen? You have to have a battle, and the, a, a, a fight ensues, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 18. I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 2 starting in verse 18 all the way through 28. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And, oops, sorry, 18. He already read that one, so you don't need to worry about that one. 18, and the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. So these are mighty men of David. Now Asahel was as, as swift as a foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he neither turned to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. So he was a man on a mission. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he said, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Here we're told uh, in the section uh, 12 through 17 is basically the leading up to the battle, and then it says the battle was fierce, and now we get a detail 
detailed accounts of that battle. It was a fierce battle, but in the middle of the fighting, there's two men who cross paths. This is a scene straight out of Hollywood. Okay, we, we've heard this before. Hollywood has no new stories. I mean, we all know that, right? It all comes from the gospel. It all comes from the Bible. They're getting it all from here. This was written, what, 3,000 years ago? And, and Hollywood only in the last 100 years had realized that this is, this is great. Well, this is real life. That's fake. In the midst of fierce fighting, the hero spots the leader of the enemy forces and pursues him across the battlefield. We've all seen that, right? Asahel, Joab's brother, again, one of David's mighty men, one of his 30 mighty men, spots and begins to pursue Abner. His focus was on killing him, cutting the head off the snake, as it were, winning and ending the battle, ultimately for the throne and ultimately for David's house. Now, whether he did this out of selfish ambition or he just saw an opportunity and he, he thought he could, he could take care of this in one foul swoop, we're not, we're not told. What we are told is that his focus was so on Abner. He had one thing in mind. And he thought, I, I'm a quick runner. I'll catch up to him. But as fast as he was, Abner was actually the more experienced war, warrior, and he warns Asahel, don't, don't come near. This is not going to end up well for you, Asahel. Go, go fight one of the young men and take his stuff. Don't, don't pursue me anymore. But he found that Asahel, he ignored him. He refused to listen. He pursued him with the focus of a lion on his prey, and it found that he found out that killing the the snake was way more difficult than he could ever imagine, and he falls dead with a spear sticking out of his back. And the snake's head is still attached. It accomplished nothing. As the men of Joab's army approach Asahel's body, they stand still. Did you, did you see that? Isn't that like a weird part of the story? You think, like, what's the big deal? Why would the army, as they pass by his body, stand still? Well, that's because, is this really what things have come to in Israel? Brother killing brother, mighty men falling in battle against their own flesh and blood. They stood still, yes, out of honor and respect, but I, I think they came and stood still out of sorrow and mourning. Not just for what had happened to Asahel, but what was happening in their midst in the battle. But while the army slows their pursuit of Abner and his men, Joab and Abishai, they now begin to pursue Abner. And they must have seen the body of their brother lying on the battlefield. And what started as a desire to win the throne of Israel for David becomes a personal mission of vengeance. And, and you say, well, where do you get that? Actually, we get that in the next chapter. <laughs> we, we see Joab and Abner are going to meet again eventually, and the vengeance of Joab's heart is revealed. He kills Abner because of what Abner did to his brother. Now, which is, you know it's vengeance and you know it's wrong because you're in the midst of a battle. 
Asahel pursued in order to kill Abner. Abner defended himself and even warned him. And yet it doesn't matter. Joab's mind is focused on pursuing and killing Abner. Well, it eventually comes to the point in the battle where there's no place left for Abner's men to run. Joab's army has them surrounded on a hilltop. And when I read this, I had to imagine um, Custer's last stand. He's, he's on the hill with his men. Now, politics and everything, I'm, I'm not going to say, that image, put that image in your mind, surrounded. Abner and his men are surrounded by David's men. Death is imminent. But then Abner cries out to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be better? bitter? In other words, come to your senses, Joab. You've won the battle, and the only thing that you're going to accomplish by continuing to fight is the death of your brothers. What good will come of that? And Abner's words actually help Joab to see the situation for what it is. Brother killing brother in a fight that in the end won't win the throne for anybody. It will only create pain and sorrow and suffering. And so with a blast of his trumpet, Joab calls his men to stop pursuing and to stop fighting. And so what began as a fight between 24 men for the throne of Israel moves to a desire of personal glory, possibly for one or at least one-minded pursuit. It ends in the desire for vengeance by another And we see how quickly things can escalate away from their original purpose, even if it's a good purpose, to take the throne for David. But when pride begins to enter into a situation, this is what happens when pride is the starting point. It ends in sorrow and pain and suffering. So what happens after after the battle? And this is very interesting to me. Verse 29 through 32. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Uh, There's something very interesting. Did you notice that David is not in this battle? He's nowhere to be found. He's not there at all. And not only isn't he fighting with the army, we don't get any idea that Joab is actually going out by David's command to fight this battle. David is non-existent in this battle. The king, that's significant. The king of Judah is not involved in a battle for the throne of Israel. And I believe that this is significant because a commander going out to battle without his king and possibly without his king's blessing is a commander that has an agenda. Joab wants to accomplish something, something that is actually godly, David on the throne of Israel. But where David sought the Lord's will on how to take the throne, Joab takes matters into his own hands, and he pridefully attempts to take the throne by force. 
And so what began, again, as a battle of 24 men escalates into the death of brothers. And only the words of Abner could snap Joab out of his prideful arrogance and vengeance. And what was the battle's result? Both armies go back home, smaller in number than when they left. David is still king of Judah. Ishbosheth is still king of Israel. Nothing has changed. Nothing. And it's not going to change over the next seven and a half years. The kingdom is still going to be split, and more young men of Israel and Judah will die in a long war for the throne. So you can look at this and say, oh, this was pointless, this battle, and this war is, is pointless. But that doesn't mean that God has stopped working. So there's an interesting thing. When you look at how many men of David died and how many men of Ishbosheth died, so you've got 20, including Asahel, and then you've got 360, and you go like, oh, okay, that makes sense, right? Like David's greater, and this is a battle that's going to fight that. And yes, you could say that. Um, but the next section, in chapter 3, it says something very interesting. And we'll look at this again a little bit, I think, next week, maybe a little bit more in depth. But here's what chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 say. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And we may just say, okay, that's because they keep losing men in battle. That's why. But then the very next section says this. This is a genealogy, basically. And the sons... Were born, and sons were born to David a Hebron. His first son was Am, Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the third, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth, Sephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, this in itself has a lot of problems, not only just in the reading of the word, but he's gaining a lot of wives. It's not going to end up very well with him. Okay, this is foreshadowing. Marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman, not one man and 20 women. And this is going to end up bad for David. And it's going to end up even worse for Solomon, his son, but that's for another time. Over the seven years, while David is king, his house grows stronger and stronger. Saul grows weaker and weaker. You see, we can look at it and say, yes, look at the amount of men who died. That must be a normal thing then in the battles. But the reality is, is as, strong, as, strong, as important as a strong army is for a king, his true strength lies in his children. Because a king without an heir is a king with no future. But a king who is able to, a king who is able to pass his throne onto his son and then his son and then his son is a king whose throne will last for generations. David has six sons in seven years while reigning with Hebron, in Hebron. Nothing is told of us, of us, to us of Ishbosheth's children. But we are told later in 2 Samuel that after his death, there's really only one descendant of Saul left. That's Jonathan's son. 
Anybody who can tell me the name of the summon son, I'll give you a handshake. Ah, oh, you guys are too good. Mephibosheth. I love that name. Shouldn't have named you that. I'm sorry. So, while David's line grew, Saul's line diminished. And who gave these children to David? Who strengthened David and weakened Saul? God. The Lord is the one who did it. Yes, battles were fought, but battles would not win and could not win the throne. David's true strength in taking the throne was found in the strength of the Lord, not in the strength of Joab, not in the strength of his army. David's worthiness of taking the throne was not found in his own strength or his own might or in the strength and might of his army or the strength and might of his followers, but in the strength and the might of God. Christ, and we've said this over how many many times, Christ is the reigning, true, anointed king of the Lord. David is a type of Christ. David's life, his reign, is used to point us to Christ, who is the true, ruling, anointed king of the Lord today. He is right now sitting on his throne in heaven. But that throne was not won by the strength of his disciples and his followers. When one of his disciples attempts to protect Christ at his arrest by cutting off the ear of one of the officers, Jesus heals the man's ear and then he tells his disciples, his disciple this. He says, put away, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you, not, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it, must, that it must be so? See, His disciple was not looking to help Christ take the throne by force in, in that sense, he, but He was looking to put Christ on the throne in His own way. He felt like it was His job to protect Christ. I need to protect the king. I need to do what needs to happen in order for him to take the throne. It was his job to protect the king. But Christ tells him, this is a war that you can't win. This is is a war that no one but Christ could win. See, Jesus didn't stop didn't need his disciples to help him take the throne. David did not need an army to take the throne. He didn't. You may say, well, it's helpful. Well, okay. But as we found out with Saul, you can have the biggest army in the world, and if God is against you, you will lose. Go back in, in history. Israel crossing the Jordan to conquer the land of Canaan, which is full of giants full of armies, and I use giants loosely. Okay, well, we'll talk about that. We can talk about that later. Really big guys who are really, really strong, who have advanced military experience, and now you have a a band of slaves, basically, who are now going to come in and conquer the land of Canaan. How do they do that? Well, God says, I will go before you. Go throughout the whole history of Israel When does a smaller army beat a larger army? When the Lord is with them. 
That's descriptive, not prescriptive for today, okay? What does Jesus need from his disciples in order for him to take the throne? What does David need from his disciples, from his followers to take the throne? Nothing. He doesn't need the help. Christ does not need the help of his disciples to not only put him there, but keep him there. Because his worthiness is not found in the number of people who follow him or in the power and might of those who follow him. Christ is worthy because the Father has declared him worthy to be the anointed king. Do you see the difference? He is worthy because he perfectly followed the desires of his father, just as David did, at least here. (laughs) David falls, Christ never did. Christ willingly sacrificed himself and shed his blood to ransom a people for God, taking upon himself the wrath of the Father for our sins. That's Revelation chapter 5. What did I do other than, well, what's, what's this? I did, I did nothing to put Christ on the throne except to sin and put him on the cross. I did nothing. You did nothing to put Christ on the throne. You did nothing to make him worthy. Because he doesn't need us. That's not a very popular message, right? Like, oh, that's really depressing. It shouldn't be. Unlike all the other gods in the world, he does not need us to find worth in and of himself. He's worthy in and of himself. He was worthy before creation. And he's worthy now, and he will always be worthy. And so that's not a put down on us. If anything, isn't that freeing? It's freeing for, for me that I, I don't need to make sure that I do everything perfectly or that I need to fight because if I don't, then Jesus isn't going to be on the throne anymore. Wow, what kind of pressure is that for you? There's only one who is worthy to sit on the eternal throne of heaven. There's only one who is worthy to judge the living and the dead, to reign in glory and honor and power, and his name is Jesus Christ, not Mark Donaldson. And this is good news for those of us who believe and submit to his rule and reign over our lives because our God has no need for us to protect him or to keep him on the throne. Now, don't hear this and say, well, I could do whatever I want then. Okay, read Romans. Paul says, uh, no. You can't just sin because, well, if Jesus is going to be king, then I could do whatever I want because it's never going to remove him. You're right. We could do whatever we want and never going to remove him from the throne. But that's not what it's called to be a Christian. Here's what I would say. If you have that mindset, you've got to check your heart because you may not be a believer or you do not fully understand and grasp what it means to be a believer. Because to be a follower of Christ is is to submit to Him, to submit to His rule and reign, 
to have him expose the sin and the things that we don't do or that we do that he does not desire us to do, the things that happen in our lives and the choices that we make which are against his commands and against his desires, he reveals them to us. And as his servants, we go, I'm sorry, Lord, we repent of that. We, we seek for his, for his forgiveness. But we do not worship a God that needs me. If Mark refused to love God and refused to obey God, it would not change who God is. Our God has no need for anyone to protect or to keep him on the throne. And yet, as his disciples, we who are biblical Christians, we have to remind ourselves that Christ doesn't need us. Like Joab, we may assume that the throne of Christ is won or lost by our abilities, our strength, our intelligence, our, our worthiness. That if for some reason I'm not perfect and I don't show myself as perfect or I don't think and do exactly the right thing at the exact right time, that somehow God's glory is going to be diminished in any way. Christ does not need us. David did not need Joab. So if David, is not ex- who's not existent in this battle, if he did not give the blessing for Joab to move forward, Joab is doing this on his own. And if we remember back to 1 Samuel, how did that work out for Saul? And we will find in the next couple of chapters, it does not work out well for Joab. Christ commands us to join him. Not to win the throne, because he's already on the throne and he will be forever. And not to keep him on the throne, but to proclaim the worthiness of the one who is sitting on the throne. Do our lives reflect that? Do the words of our mouth reflect that? the things that we think reflect that as his people, as his disciples, as his followers. Again, not not out of perfection. We should strive to be obedient in all things that Christ has commanded us to do, but that doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change who he is. Are our lives proclaiming the worthiness of the one who is already sitting on that throne? Or are we striving, even in a good godly purpose, to control things on our own in order to, like, if I don't do this, then God, Christ's worthiness is going to be diminished. And the fear is, is if we have that attitude, then we're going to end up like Joab. We're going to be like Saul. I pray that that's that's not where our hearts are. I pray that we would proclaim the worthiness of Christ. Um, I want to read Revelation chapter 5. I spoke about this a few minutes ago. Revelation chapter 5. 
verses 9 through 13, John sees, he has a vision. He's in heaven. He sees Christ. There's seven seals that are about to be opened. There's, there's a lot that's there. I'm, we're not going to go into it, but Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 9, John looks and he sees um, these living creatures that are around the throne, and this is what they're saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed your people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is a big crowd of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and they worshiped. Do our lives reflect this glory? Do our lives reflect the glory of the King who is on the throne? Or are we striving in our own goodness, in our own perfection, to put him on the throne? He's already there. He does not need us, and yet he desires to use us. Not to put him on the throne, but to proclaim his glory. Father, I pray, as your people, God, that you would help this to sink deep into us, Father, that we would see the, re, the reaction of Joab, the, the heart of Joab and his desire to do good, but he doesn't seek you. And it turns, Father, into this prideful heart of vengeance. He loses sight. He loses track of why and why he's even doing what he's doing and why he's supposed to do it for the glory of of your king, David, to win the throne for him, and it turns into a selfish, self-focused ambition. And I pray, Father, that as your people, that we would not fall prey to that. We would recognize pride in our own heart. I pray that we would repent of that pride, that we would turn to you and be reminded your son, Jesus Christ, is already on the throne. Nothing and no one will ever remove him of that. And our lives are but to proclaim who you are and who he is. And so, Father, I pray that we would, like David, seek your will, not pursue our own. And for those, Father, who don't know you, that they are fighting against your son who is on the throne, Father, you would soften their hearts, that, the, that you would remove the pride, let the scales fall from their eyes and help them to see the true worthiness of your son. 
and that he is glorious beyond all compare. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our